0: Today's episode is brought to you by Claire Fuller's Bitter Orange, which NPR picked as a Best Book of the Year, hailing the novel as a finely crafted psychological thriller. The devilish novelist gives us a sunny, summery, open backdrop that nevertheless becomes a vise tightening around the throats of both the main character and the reader. And the Paris Review writes, Page by page, Fuller enchants us with prose as thick as clotted cream, only for us to realize too late that she's been ensnaring us at every turn. Bitter Orange is available in paperback now from Tin House Books. People who support the show receive an email from me as each episode is released. These emails often describe something about the circumstance of the interview as well as providing links to essays or other material that is referenced during the conversation, either by me or by the guest. But because the circumstances were so unusual for my last guest, Zadie Smith, and my current guest, Richard Powers, where I was interviewing Zadie twice in one day, once for the radio, and a second time that night on stage, and similarly the next day interviewing Richard Powers on the radio, and then again on stage, I've made the last two supporter messages public and available on the Patreon page in case you want to check out some of these backstage musings, as well as to get links to some of the material we discuss in both of these conversations. Also, if you're a subscriber to the bonus audio archive, do make sure not to miss this one where Richard Powers discusses a collaborative cantata about trees that he did with musicians and with other writers, including Kim Stanley Robinson and Bill McKibben. And then Powers reads a poem by W.S. Merwin about trees and tree blindness that is part of this collaboration. The bonus audio archive, the public behind-the-scenes notes, and other supporter gifts such as Hanif abdur A Fortune for Your Disaster and Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing can be found at patreon.com slash covers. Or if you are looking to support the show in other ways, you can go to TinHouse.com slash support. Enjoy today's program.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
0: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effects in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that.
1: You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel. Didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Richard Powers. Powers is the author of 12 novels, novels that have often interwoven science, from genetics and medicine to neuroscience and artificial intelligence, with his love of the humanities, from music theory, painting, and photography, to investigating storytelling itself. Powers is a graduate of the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, where he studied physics and English and received a master's degree in literature. Before Powers was a novelist, he was a computer programmer, but he found immediate success with his 1985 debut novel, Three Farmers on a Way to a Dance. It and four of his other novels have been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His fourth book, Operation Wandering Soul, was a finalist for the National Book Award. His 1998 novel, Gain, won the James Fenimore Cooper Prize for Best Historical Fiction, and his ninth novel, The Echo Maker, won the National Book Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction in 2006. Richard Powers has taught at the University of Illinois and Stanford. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's the recipient of a Lannan Literary Award and a MacArthur Genius Grant, and he's here today to talk about his most recent book, his 12th the winner of the 2019 Pulitzer Prize in fiction entitled The Overstory. Margaret Atwood says it is not possible for Powers to write an uninteresting book. Ann Patchett calls The Overstory the best novel ever written about trees and really just one of the best novels, period. Bill McKibben says The Overstory is beyond special. Richard Powers manages to turn trees into vivid and engaging characters, something that indigenous people have done for eons but that modern literature has rarely, if ever, even attempted. It's not just a completely absorbing, even overwhelming book. It's a kind of breakthrough in the ways we think about and understand the world around us at a moment when that is desperately needed. Barbara Kingsolver says the overstory accomplishes what few living writers from either camp, art or science, could attempt. Using the tools of the story, he pulls readers heart first, into a perspective so much longer lived and more subtly developed than the human purview that we gain glimpses of a vast primordial sensibility while watching our own kind get whittled down to size. The Overstory is a gigantic fable of genuine truths. Welcome to Between the Covers, Richard Powers.
1: Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me here.
0: Nearly every contemporary book is made from and out of trees. But we never think about books as trees, as vehicles for our imaginations. The Overstory, which is also made of tree, is aiming in a variety of ways to also be imaginatively tree-centric, to be shaped by trees and to assume the shape of trees. But before we talk about the various ways that you do that, I'd love to hear about your initial interest in writing a book fully from the point of view of trees, from within tree consciousness, the obstacles you ran up against mm. and then the workarounds that you developed to carry the book and the project forward
1: yeah that that was a, a vision that I had for the book in the first couple of years that I was doing the groundwork research I mean, the, uh, the book as a whole uh, unfolded over the course of somewhere between five and six years and my My conversion experience from a condition of relative tree blindness to uh, at least the novitiate state of tree consciousness um, made me think that it it might be lovely to, to really displace the human altogether and produce a narrative that that was focalized entirely either from a single tree or a society of trees. Since one of the great discoveries that I made as I began to study trees and read about them uh, is just how social they are, uh, and how how communitarian they are. But in that regard, I was inspired perhaps by by a nonfiction book by David Suzuki called tree which was uh, subtitled the the biography of uh of a douglas fir mm. and an attempt to get to a lot of the astonishing new kinds of behaviors that we've been learning about trees over the last several decades by telling the story of an individual douglas fir he actually diverges from that plan a bit in 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 his non-fiction and i thought it it would be worth, at least, struggling for a while, um, to try to more rigorously adhere to that close focalization in a in a fictional form. the The challenge, of course, is when when your primary characters don't move and they and they and they unfold over long periods of time how to create the natural kinds of tension and drama that that humans recognize without falling prey to a kind of ersatz or, you know, phony uh, disnification, anthropomorphizing. Uh, It wasn't without interest for me to attempt that as an exercise because the thing that I really discovered was that I didn't want to tell the story of a tree or a group of trees In the absence of humans, any more than I wanted to yet again tell another story about humans in the absence of the more than human. Mm. What I really wanted to do was find a vehicle that would make it possible to tell an old-fashioned 19th century Tolstoyan-like drama that took as its heart the relationship between trees and people.
0: Well, the overstory assumes the superstructure, the anatomy and life cycle of a tree with its four sections: right. roots, trunk, crown, and seeds. Right. Can you talk broadly about how this this form influenced the content and also the movement through the book?
1: Once again, I you know I can't claim that I knew what I was doing when I started out. Uh, in fact, far from it, I was looking for various forms. For another technical problem, once I had realized that I didn't want to do this kind of close and somewhat artificial exercise of focalizing entirely through trees, uh, my cast of characters expanded pretty rapidly to, to nine primary human characters and four rather significant trees. And... It was such a large canvas that i didn 't know how to organize it in a way that would make it um, coherent to a large number of readers that's that 's a lot of characters there's probably twice as many characters as would typically major characters as would, would typically inhabit uh, a, a contemporary novel and I tried various forms. To realize that, and I just you know I I thought what I need to do is is hold one variable you know deploy one variable in a co- in a consistent way and and allow the other ones to kind of be organized by the skeleton of that variable. And so you know one of the ways was was time, of course, since you know we 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 think of drama as unfolding linearly. And I thought, well, I'll just start at the beginning of these multiple intertwined tales and move it forward. And people will pop in and out as they become significant, uh, and I wrote that all out, and it seemed great while I was working on the draft and Then I went back to read the reread the finished draft, and I was having trouble keeping the characters straight yeah. just because of that the, the demands associated with leaving one focalized frame and starting in another one, just by virtue of the fact that time dictated that cut and I thought, well, oh, you know, how do people really build up their empathy and their identification with an individual character and they have to see that character do things in the face of severe challenge make make the best of a bad situation they have to see them pitching their values again and again against a changing landscape of you know environmental challenge i'll just co i'll i'll, I'll collate, I'll, I'll, I'll bring together all of the essential backstories of the characters and deploy them uh, individually as short stories almost, and, and let the reader live with that character for enough time to form an emotional identification and attachment, to be caught up in the drama, to, ha- you know, to have that uh, v- vested emotions in the success or failure of, of that individual's life. And I'll just put them, I'll juxtapose them. And the, yes, there'll be a little bit of a risk. It'll seem you know, to, to certain readers who are saying, hey, I you know, thought this was a novel. You know, I, I, it's, it's more like a collection an anthology of short stories. I'll run that risk. It's, it'll, it'll be an atypical uh, uh, structural experiment. And then I had this moment of, aha, if I do that, and let the next section be what happens to these established characters as they begin to meet and aggregate and form their own community of action and concerted you know social effort. What I have our trunk are our roots leading up into a trunk, mm. and at the minute I saw that, I just thought hey this will this will guide the entire structure of the whole book they they will uh, they will go from their individual lives up into a common cause. The, the 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 drama of the story will lead them up to a catastrophic moment that will blow them apart as a community, and they will follow out their own separate lives on, on each separate branch, and that will be the crown. And then the unforeseen consequences of their actions decades later will be the resulting seeds of the story. So now there's both a structural and a temporal organizational scheme that... Um, not not just represent the story of this community ad hoc community but actually participate in their community as a as a living thing that that morphologically resembles the subject that they're all drawn up into
0: another way that you um bring tree-ness into the way the the story is told is that each of these nine human protagonists have a tree avatar so that to understand Nicholas, Mimi, Adam, Ray, Dorothy, Douglas, Nile, Pat Patricia and Olivia, we have to also think of the chestnut, mulberry, maple, oak, linden, fir, fig, beech and ginkgo trees mm. respectively. Yeah. But you could also argue that it isn't human actors with tree avatars, but rather tree protagonists with human avatars, because the narrative e- of each of these human characters is is changed ultimately, and then driven by trees, and then some of the characters are are literally and physically saved by
1: trees, mm, yeah yeah, their lives are all uh deflected deformed, transformed uh, by interactions with trees, but surprising how true that is for a lot of us In, interestingly as you were as you were saying that, I was remembering another process um, uh, where my uh my approach to that organizational scheme changed in over the course of revision initially those chapters took the tree name and not the person name mm. in other words you know the uh, instead of the, the the chapter on Nicholas Houle that opens the book i called it american chestnut mm. i actually used the the latin names and the the common names in in um, uh, subtitle parentheticals and that to me Seemed to to overplay the allegorical component of the book. Um, the book is a is an interesting tightrope between historical realism and fable, and that that relationship is shifting, and the reader has to puzzle that out and, and figure out and how those two things fit together. But to to deploy those chapters by their tree names it pushed it a little too far toward the allegorical. And I hit on this idea to go ahead and name them by the central character, and just use a botanical plate, an engraving, uh, you know, an old-style emblem, as a as a drop heading for each section. And it had an extra little interest because you could look at that tree at the and and not notice until three or four chapters in that each each one of those subheading you know uh, illustrations is different. Maybe not even be able to identify the tree visually, uh, but it, you will now—you would now be paying attention to the life story of that person to see what tree mm. is going to cast this kind of dominant, dominating spell over that life, and then go back and see if that indeed is the picture that you were looking at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, perhaps the heart of the story, or one of the hearts of the story, is the character Patricia. Mm who's a tree scientist, yeah. a dendrologist who, yeah. who works here in Oregon yeah. in a forest outside of Corvallis. Right. And she developed some theories and insights about trees that cause her to be marginalized and ridiculed in the scientific community. And it's only decades later that her work is vindicated. And and she's based on the work in lives of some real life scientists, mm-hmm. um, some of whom I've heard you mention, Diana Beresford-Kroger, Suzanne Simard, and Robin Kimmerer. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about some of the real-life science from some of these three women or others that captures your imagination and that may have informed the character of Patricia.
1: You know, I should also say that uh, that her earliest work on over-the-air signaling between trees, the use of chemical pheromones to, to send messages and change behavior of trees over distance— um, was based on uh, published work by male scientists earlier <laughs> on in the 20th century, you know, an older generation of scientists. So I should, fiction is always a, a, a compositing, yes. a, a tr- transforming, and a, and a, and a combining and substituting. Uh, but what intrigued me about the researchers who you've mentioned and what I tried to put into the story of Patricia. Is this act of courage that's required to challenge the dogma of a discipline, the consensual wisdom, by putting your faith in that radical skepticism of simply making the measurements and you know, the empiricism in its purest form. to go into the field, and to see what's there instead of what should be there sounds like that's just what scientists do. But in fact, scientists are deeply part of p- communities that form all kinds of intellectual and material pressures on, you know, on themselves and there's there's a great need to to conform and normalize the research that you do, especially when it comes to raising funds and getting published and convincing you know your colleagues that you're not crazy. Mm-hmm. You could put another female researcher uh, who's a bit younger than the ones that you mentioned, um, uh, whose research is stunning, Monica Galliano, uh, who was also uh, you know been doing very controversial but uh, deeply rigorous work on uh, plant intelligence. And in all cases, the individual practitioner, the, the individual researcher, has to find it in herself to rely upon the authority of careful work even in the advanced knowledge that it's not going to play well with the gatekeepers who often are older males, you know the alpha researchers who dominate fields that are often dominated by by men and by consensus and by tradition and by a certain kind of academic political power so that's that's the story uh that I wanted to um to dramatize by compositing into into Patricia. And it's the story also of a last laugh. It's the story of someone who lives long enough to see that work vindicated, who goes through the darkness of ostracization and rejection and humiliation, and then who gets rehabilitated. Not always with the proper amount of restitution <laughs> and acknowledgement. Uh, but yeah. It's a it's it's not it's it doesn't always gender. I mean there are stories of immense scientific heroism, you know, that that have unfolded over the course of centuries, that have played out in all kinds of different ways, and it's it's often, you know, it, it's often men and and privileged people who somehow f- find that path through through, um, well, what- through through contestation and and who find a way of establishing truths that were not yet truths.
0: When I think about your interest in both art and science, when I think about the wonder you evoke in this book and the wonder that your characters experience for tree beings, when, when they start to see them as beings, Mm -hmm. the wonder is partly the wonder of what we discover about them scientifically. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of it is the wonder of them as beings. Yeah. So gesturally, aesthetically, even morally or ethically when we learn about the ways that they share across species or even across kingdom. uh, It doesn't seem to me like a coincidence that two of the real life scientists, Diana Beresford-Kroger and Robin Kimmerer, are not just drawing upon science as scientists, but also upon ancient traditional knowledge. That's right. That Beresford-Kroger comes from a, a lineage, a Celtic lineage. That's right. And that Robin Kimmerer is drawing on indigenous American culture and right. that their insights Just come from
1: yeah. yeah
0: from a a twinning of scientific inquiry but also an active relationship with tree as actor
1: that's right tree uh, tree as agent with with uh, uh, a, a kind of supple behavior that isn't merely mechanical yeah yeah and and that re Habilitation of indigenous ways of understanding agency and and desire and and flexible behavior and purpose in the absence of controlled, rigorous, double-blind laboratory reductionism is a part of the story of our future. You know, it's not a casual thing when people like Robin Wall Kimmerer say we need to learn to become indigenous again. Uh, what's interesting about those practitioners, Kimmerer in particular, is that does not mean a renunciation of empirical, you know, scientific study, or of technology. That's correct. It's 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 rather a new kind of synthesis and. And to become indigenous again uh, is is not to return to a pre-technological state or a pre-scientific state. Mm -hmm. It's simply to return to ways of thinking and knowing about the relationship between human and more than human. And to the extent that this book represents... a a kind of displacement of the anthropocentric from the traditionally massively anthropocentric genre of the novel. know, to the extent that this book tries to say you can't understand the human without the more than human, or vice versa, that they're inextricably linked, it's not doing a brand new thing. It's doing something that most world literature in most places would have done for most of human history. Yeah. Right? It's just doing it in the in the in the modern technology of the novel. Mm. Uh and, and and to me that's that's the way forward. How 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 can we rehabilitate a sensibility that we've lost without necessarily abdicating other things that we've discovered along the way. Mm. Uh,
0: another thing that I thought about in regards to this is something that Jeff Vandermeer said when he was on the show. Mm. I think of him as a kindred spirit in terms of also working on narrativizing a different relationship that's, to that's humans. That's
1: exactly right. And I think he himself uh, uh, made mention in public fora about that affinity between the, his work and, and, and this novel. Oh, he did? Yeah.
0: Well, one thing he did say was, one frustration I have is simply that we think of hard tech, like our cell phones, as being incredibly complex. But if you could actually see the complexity of the world around us, hard tech would look very, very
1: simplistic. Oh, my God. And crude to the extreme. You know, I, at one point in the book, I try to articulate what's happening in the thin thin layer of a leaf and all of the machinery and the apparatus that's packed into that that tiny substrate and and just the 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 miraculous uh, biological apparatus that's involved in turning sunlight into food into everything that there is um it was beyond my capacity as a writer to do, but it surely opened my eyes to the truth of what Van is talking about—that yeah. you know we pat ourselves on the back for for ingenuity, and it's it is so rudimentary and crude compared to you know everything that the biological world is is doing, and that's you know to, that's also. One of, the, one of the great insights that I came to in the, in the course of reading for this book, and one of the things that I tried to uh, invest in the book it, it is the realization that the world that we inhabit is not some rather reducible geophysical system that we can get an easy mathematical model for you know, in a, in a reductionist way. It, it, it is. It is alive. The planet is alive, and it, it so far exceeds our ability to articulate. And we can't. I mean, we can't even articulate ways of running experiments that would get at the the components of of these complex systems because. They are complex systems. The components don't function autonomously or independently. Mm-hmm. So we can't even apply the, 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 the standard practice of reductionism to understand them. And in some ways, it goes back to your, your question about the role of technology in this. I feel that if we are to apprehend the enormous complexity of the living world, and not reduce it to a set of you know of physical mathematical constructs that we can then control or master it's going to be through another kind of knowledge making and and that includes computational modeling and that's why one of the one of the big threads of the story involves somebody who goes through that route you know the 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 uh, the, the story of Nile Mehta in Silicon Valley, who who has a deep relationship to to the digital transformation of the world and who realizes that, A, the digital transformation of the world is making us more alienated in many ways. It's it's creating an even greater illusion of human exceptionalism. But, B, it could be the tool, and it has already proved to be the tool in a, in a rudimentary way, of our final of, 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 of our newfound ability to understand what the neighbors are doing, yeah. and it's not a coincidence. I'd like to point out it's not a coincidence that the rise of ecology as a formal field of study, the rise of understanding of complex systems, the rise of environmental science, is concurrent with the rise of computation. Hmm. We would not in in in. With human brains alone, we wouldn't have the ability to create and understand, to, to follow out over long periods of time and using huge amounts of variables, the complexity of a living system. For that, we need our prosthetics.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Richard Powers about the overstory. I think this would be a good time to hear a little bit from the book. Sure. And I know this isn't necessarily a representative um, reading but i would love it if you did read the beginning sure um particularly because i think it evokes the the aliveness of the planet
1: so this is um this is a page and a half long it's it's uh kind of a lyrical overture um uh, it it sets the scene thematically for what will then be embodied and dramatized through human protagonists. But in this section and in other uh, intervals throughout the book, it's really the, the trees who are the protagonists. It's a very, very lush prose that's attempting to embody a little bit of that complexity and the unpredictability and the immensity of these processes, the agency and the desire of these processes that we were talking about earlier. First there was nothing, then there was everything. Then, in a park above a western city after dusk, the air is raining messages. A woman sits on the ground, leaning against a pine. Its bark presses hard against her back, as hard as life. Its needles scent the air and a force hums in the heart of the wood. Her ears tune down to the lowest frequencies. The tree is saying things in words before words. It says, Sun and water are questions endlessly worth answering. It says, A good answer must be reinvented many times from scratch. It says every piece of earth needs a new way to grip it. There are more ways to branch than any cedar pencil will ever find. A thing can travel everywhere just by holding still. The woman does exactly that. Signals rain down around her like seeds. Talk runs far afield tonight. The bends in the alders speak of long-ago disasters. Spikes of pale chinkapin flowers shake down their pollen. Soon they will turn into spiny fruits. Poplars repeat the wind's gossip. Persimmons and walnuts set out their bribes in rowans, their blood-red clusters. Ancient oaks wave prophecies of future weather. The several hundred kinds of hawthorn laugh at the single name they're forced to share. Laurels insist that even death is nothing to lose sleep over. Something in the air's scent commands the woman. Close your eyes and think of Willow. The weeping you see will be wrong. Picture an Acacia thorn. Nothing in your thought will be sharp enough. What hovers right above you? What floats out over your head right now? Now. Trees even farther away join in. All the ways you imagine us, bewitched mangroves up on stilts, a nutmeg's inverted spade, gnarled Baha elephant trunks, the straight-up missile of a sol, are always amputations Your kind never sees us whole. You miss the half of it, and more. There's always as much below ground as above. That's the trouble with people, their root problem. Life runs alongside them, unseen. Right here, right next. Creating the soil, cycling water, trading in nutrients, making weather, building atmosphere, feeding and curing and sheltering more kinds of creatures than people know how to count. A chorus of living wood sings to the woman, If your mind were only a slightly greener thing, we'd drown you in meaning. The pine she leans against says, Listen, there's something you need to hear
0: been listening to Richard Powers read the opening of The Overstory. Ursula Le Guin liked to call the relationship she strove for between the human and the non-human as fellow feeling. Mm. And she very much wanted to knock the human off their pedestal by putting us in relationship to the other in a way that included listening, being still, creating space for difference and otherness, a position that for her was informed by the writings of Lao Tzu. And I also think of Martin Buber's I-thou relationship in contrast to the I-it relationship. And he also has a meditation on a tree in, in that book.
1: Yeah, that's right. Really.
0: A really beautiful one.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but thinking about them, I wondered about how you viewed human language in relationship to the act of relating. And the reason I ask is many of these characters in the book find a way to connect with trees outside of language. Several do this through visual art. Um But I also wonder if it's a coincidence that Patricia is hearing and speech impaired and that when another character is permanently robbed of speech and mobility, he too, like Patricia, develops a deep connection with trees. So I wondered if you saw language as obstacle or vehicle Mm. when it comes to relating with the non-human and to reality or to the quote-unquote real world, or to put it in the words of Forrest Gander when he was questioning Or raising questions about the philosophy of deep ecology: Is the real pre-linguistic? Does language participate in foundational reality?
1: Hmm. Oh my goodness! How many cans of worms you've opened? (laughs) (laughs) It's it is really at the heart of the desire of the book, and also at the heart of the the. the challenges, the dramatic challenges of the book. Um, Le when really uh, put her finger on it. I, I, I think of the simple word kinship, uh, and so much of the book is an attempt to dramatize all of the multiple levels of kinship that do unite us w- with creatures with whom most of us feel no em- empathy or identity, uh, identification or kinship. Uh, Robin Kimmerer talks about reciprocity, reciprocal relationships. Um, it's interesting. I, I you know, I, I owe so much to Le Guin. She She's really, she's really the, the pioneer of a certain deep insight about who we are and, and how we, how we connect with the more than human, um, and I did not know that that uh, she traces a lot of this back to Lao Tzu. I have been finding it in Buddhism, uh, the notion of interbeing, the notion of co-arising, and it's interesting to think about how many of these con- these Buddhistic concepts, Buddhist concepts, converge with deep ecological and evolutionary thinking co-arising and co-evolving are very similar Mm -hmm. things. Uh, but to, to understand the the numeric fact about the huge amount of genes that all, you know, all, uh, eukaryotic cells, uh, share, let alone, you know, um, complex animal and plant, um, doesn't necessarily move people to instant kinship, but stories about the ways in which fates are constantly shaping each other
0: mm.
1: can sometimes reinstitute that sense of proximity, that sense of interbeing. And it, it, is, it is the denial of interbeing, this human-centric, individual-oriented, commodity-mediated, Ayn Randish, you know, uh, it's everybody, f- you know, survival of the of the most brutal, you know, and the, and, and the emphasis on on individual triumph and autonomy and and competition. That is the source of the environmental catastrophe that we're bringing down upon ourselves. It is only a rehabilitation. Of the the notion of kinship, uh, of interbeing. What was her term again? Fellow feeling. Fellow feeling. Yeah. Um, it is it is only the revival of those concepts, all of which are are deeply imbricated into indigenous knowledge. The the the, the, the realization that we belong to place and we we must participate in the community that place generates. It is only the rehabilitation of that state of mind in a in a post technological world that's that's going to give us any prospect of, of continuing uh in into the world that, that we've so badly uh damaged.
0: Well when the trees say in the passage that you read, if your mind were a little more green we we would drown you in meaning. Yeah. I, I, I wonder about a rewilding of language. That's right. Uh, Because Kimmerer has an essay, nature needs a new pronoun to stop the age of extinction. Let's start by ditching it. Yeah. And she comes up, she proposes a a pronoun for non-humans. But uh, even just the idea at one point when languages were more immediately visual, when you didn't forget that they were representing and even doing something, that was art or aesthetic in beyond the the transfer of meaning. Right.
1: Forgive me for wandering away from your original the the question about whether language prevents or or uh, enables that kind of uh, fellow feeling or or kinship. Um it is a prison house, right? it it does prevent us from inhabiting and embodying the things that we have to so grossly deform to put into the crude semantics of this system that we have and and every human being knows that to some extent when you when when you reach your deepest moments with another person your deepest potential, your deepest crises w- words are an insult right and it's and we need things with greater bandwidth. We need communicative devices, kinship that 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 can that can sidestep that narrow aperture that that's that limited bandwidth and that semantic deformation of words. However, the map is not the place, but it's the only thing we have to navigate the place. And it is in fact, it's very limits that can be played against it themselves to create moments of, of kinship of participation identity. They, you know, the, the, the same thing that is a prison can, can create, a tunnel, an underground tunnel into another cell somewhere and and, and show the uh, how how much uh, each trapped subject position has in common and it's it's useful the words themselves may not suffice to embody or inhabit that other position, but they can be the medium for the transformation of the person who was attempting to find those other positions. And I'll I'll say, you know, there's a passage in this book where Patricia Westerford comes to the Cascades for the first time in her life and is confronted by these astonishing forests that, you know, any Easterner is just blown away by uh, when you see these conifers, you know, when you see the big red cedars and the, and the, and the Douglas firs and the Sitka spruces and, you know, and you, and you just, you're just boggled by them. And she resorts to an indigenous formulation. And the, the, the cultures that originally inhabited this place would have forms of address. They would use language to directly address the non-human. And she starts to talk to this big red cedar. She's embarrassed at first. But as she goes along, she gains more and more security and more and more comfort and she uses the ancient formulas and she just thanks the tree for everything that the tree enabled and and gave I was talking to the uh, environmental f- philosopher and writer David Abram and he said that passage stuck out in particular for him and he said you know a lot of rational and human-centric and and scientific and otherwise estranged and alienated people will scoff at the the use of language to address a a non-human entity. Are you expecting it to talk back? Do you think it really understands you? Do you think it changes anything to, to say something to them? And his answer is no, it doesn't. But in my own head it promotes that tree from an object to a subject mm-hmm. it makes that tree a, f- a fellow f- a fellow kin yeah.
0: yeah and that feels like something you're definitely engaged with actively in the overstory and there's i, I want to leap from that and look at other ways that you're um interrogating story because you do have a character who says at one point that arguments don't change minds stories change minds. Mm-hmm. And yet we have the conundrum that a good story for most humans is a story that has a human hero mm-hmm. of some sort, or that we're watching a human problem solve yeah. in it. But, but another thing that I, that I think you, you, you trouble that. And, but one of the th- things your book does, I think, is also question some of the assumptions of what makes a story literary. Typically we elevate works that aim for a moral ambiguity. So, mm-hmm. uh, the villains get humanized and the heroes have flaws. That's right. But your book has an overt moral aim. And I'd love to hear you talk about that in relationship to the contemporary taboo, because in a way I feel like you're, this is another way you're asserting a different way to tell a story.
1: That's absolutely true. So let let me start there. And maybe if we get a chance, we can come back to some of the earlier observations that you made, which are really, really rich. As the novel and as as fiction in general did commit to human exceptionalism and did base most of its dramas around either the crises inside an individual will or mind uh, and, and the moral ambiguities of a of an individual person or the incommensurable values between two people or two groups of people or a small group of people. Um, it it let go of this third kind of drama, which is what does the living world want and how does that differ from the the you know the the selfish and limited desires of, of individual people? Um, but It also committed to this idea that if we take meaning to be primarily a function of individual improvisational, synthetic effort, then everything that a self arrives at is going to be equivocal and contingent Mm. and if we if we really do sink entirely into a world where meaning is private and personal and and forged in conflict but necessarily contingent to the experiences of that person then it is true that every story has to completely you know reveal that contingency and crash it up against other contingencies and that to me is the essence of literary humanism it's not without value right because you know we we will always struggle with the fact that we know the world through our own private senses and and uh mental uh, uh experience and, and and trajectory but if you go back to or forward to this other way of thinking that we've been talking about, you begin to situate meaning not in the private self, but in the land, in the place, in the living world, in the ecosystem. Meaning is out there. Life has been pursuing an extraordinary experimental uh, journey in 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 incalculable number of incalculable number of variables and you are part of that journey and it behooves you to go out and look into it and find it and and locate yourself in it and find that fellow feeling and that kinship and 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 dispense with your, your, your own contingencies and try to replace them with that, this sense of the immense journey, you know, in Lauren Isley's phrase, um, then it's no longer necessary to create a literature entirely around moral ambiguity. Mm. You now say, actually, the destruction of 98% of the United States original forests the primary old growth forests uh it's not a morally ambiguous thing that's not good for any form of life whatever your private humanist formulations are you they need to be surrendered in the face of desperately trying to preserve this last 2% because there are things happening in those last places that will never happen again once they disappear. Mm. Right, so uh, that's the kind of story that I, t- I tell. Um, there are people who object to that because they've they've committed to this other kind of literary humanism. There are people who think that the, the minute you say there are values that are not ambiguous. That you're writing propaganda or tract literature, and that's going to diminish you. That it knocks you out of you know, serious consideration from f- first rank literary fiction. So be it. I mean, I I think uh, the the kind of transformation in consciousness that I'm talking about will see the underpinning, unexamined, internalized values that. Would make that kind of hierarchy, uh, and and would find the need to constantly return to individual ambiguity as 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 a higher meaning. It isn't. It's a. It's simply a, a more self-indulgent, more 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 human-centric uh, meaning uh, or, or formulation.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Richard Powers about his latest book, The Overstory. Well, you you mentioned a couple times in this in this last bit about humanism. Mm. And when you were in conversation with Benjamin Markovitz, who to be clear loves the overstory, mm. he talked about the dangers of a novel with a moral aim being that it could result in nihilism or anti-humanism. Mm. And he seemed to equate or conflate the two. But when you went on to correct him that anti-humanism and nihilism aren't necessarily the same thing, he he said, well, why would you want to choose either? Mm. But when I think of all the goodwill and idealism that secular society invests in the word humanism, Mm. as if human values were the noblest values and where humans and their values, regardless of what they are, are front and center – I don't see myself anti-humanism as nihilistic or anti-human mm. rather anti-humanism as anti-human exceptionalism but I was curious about your thoughts around humanism and nihilism yeah. and human exceptionalism yeah.
1: and here here we are you know bumping up against the 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 rascally nature of words again I think I think part of the um, the difficulty with with Markovitz it was simply a, a, a definitional one. What does that word humanism mean? And you know it's a it's a word that plays a heroic role in certain aspects of history. And to, uh, if if by humanism you mean the impulse that rejects tyrannical colonial absolutist forms of thought um and places in their stead processes of democratic scientific exploration testing humility human and humility come from the same root the root is earth it's mm. an Indo-European word meaning earth. Humus also comes from the same. Interesting. If you, if you mean by humanism those forces, then certainly you wouldn't want to write an anti-humanist, that is an anti-earth-based story. But if, if you mean by that word anthrocentrism or exceptionalism or the kind of program of control and mastery that we've committed to in the last two centuries, then a literature that questions and troubles and displaces that is going to be very useful. Yeah, um, you know, we we talk about regenerative agriculture and agricultural practices that make the soil richer. They're they're putting the humus back into the humus, hmm. and we can talk about regenerative economics, the e- economy and Ecology comes from the same root, meaning housekeeping. Regenerative economics makes economics and ecology the same thing again, which they never should have been separate, right? So regenerative literature would would put the humus back into the human. Mm, right? I
0: love would that. It would bring
1: the humans back to the land.
0: It made me think of the, the word Adam, too, which mm, also yeah. Adam, the first human, yeah. that's also the word for earth.
1: That's right. Yep. That's a,
0: well, I want to return... You had mentioned earlier about Nile, the computer programmer, who has developed a game that has become a multi-million dollar enterprise and where a newer version of the game coming out is a major event. Mm. It is another way I think you look at language and storytelling. When when players exhaust the world um, that they're in, there's an increasing pressure for more imagined worlds yeah. to be created. Yeah. And this dynamic seems in a lot of ways to parallel corporate capitalism That's right. in the real world and predi- it's sort of predicated on an unchecked growth model. Right. But Neely decides eventually he wants to change the way the game is played. Right. And this is to the chagrin of his board and his shareholders. Right. Uh, and I was hoping maybe you could talk about the new type of game he wants right. in relationship to the, sort of the new type of storytelling that you're telling.
1: Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's no great spoiler to say, that this idea is so radical. Radical also has an interesting etymology, <laughs> meaning roots. Uh, that it gets him kicked out of his own company, his own yeah. progeny reject him and and dispossess him and deny, strip him of his citizenship, and he has to go off on his own. Uh, the original formulation, you know, in a, in a sense, the game as a, as an individual, you know, uh, evolution of of a, of a particular software. Trajectory becomes a kind of metonymy for the whole consumer digital uh, revolution as well. This amazing sense at the beginning of this that a new thing was entering into history and there were going to be new. Ways of being human in societies and in communities, and that you know there were a, a, a thousand flowers were going to bloom, and that that you know the, all this the hope in the long tail, and the way that the digital world was going to uh, democratize us at last, and and now you know now we've seen at the end of this long process ways in which you know the rich get richer the loud get louder, the marginalized get, and I'm not saying universally, but, uh, the revolution that was envisioned in those early days has been co-opted and preempted in so many ways as, as I mean, that's, that's human history, right? Uh, all, every technology has positive and negative affordances. We want to believe that we can hang with those positive affordances, and somehow the, the negative ones produce their own attractors, and you know, huge market forces get you know get leveled and put into play, and all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're in a world where attention is even harder to, 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 to muster, because of how in, incredibly seductive and 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 uh, inviting it is to believe in in an even even greater separation of the human from the rest of the living world by living in these digital spaces so uh it, but you 're right that the the game uh, uh, originally also functions as a kind of emblem for for growth based capitalism, and I even invoke the famous Rockefeller rejoinder to the question. Uh, you know how much is enough uh, to which rockefeller famously answered just a little bit more oh, <laughs> <Right? yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and i never i've never known how savvy or ironical he was being when he said that and how you know how potentially self deconstructing he was when he said it or whether he actually meant it at face value i'd have to go back and look up the original context for that but um the what neither he wants to now somehow recover that original dream of the digital prosthetic, of using it not to flee from the world, but to give us tools to magnify and make legible the living world. What if we took that same game and instead of making the point of the game, the amassing and accreting of commodities... And made it instead about rehabilitating, rejuvenating, enhancing, uh, multiplying the complexity of living spaces. Why not make it a simulation of biological community?
0: Yeah. Well, I think one of the appealing things about the corporate capitalist model or certain space travel narratives is that we never have to self-examine we're always moving forward into a new space yeah. and we're always ad- sort of admiring in sort of an endless self-regard our abilities to problem solve into the new space as the main actor yeah. and not um, face uh, any sort of limits.
1: Because we're almost there. And, uh, you know, the the next acquisition and the next assembly is going to give us what we haven't been able to get yet. and. You know, B- Bill McKibben's new book, Valter, explores that myth in a variety of ways. And he ends up saying, you know, the ultimate arrival point of that notion that somehow acquisition and and the, the stockpiling of personal well-being and personal meaning, the ultimate project is going to be the Methuselah project. It's going to be defeating death. Mm. I lived in Silicon Valley. I went to dinner parties in Silicon Valley. I... Had was immersed in the thick of that culture. It was hard to go, you know, longer than a, a couple of weeks without somebody articulating in some form that kind of Ray Kurzweil dream of technology solving mortality. Mortality is a flaw in biological design, and we're gonna we're gonna repair that flaw, and it was that tension living in the valley where the, that the game had progressed to such an extent that no one found that ironical or or ludicrous or contemptible while you know being flanked on the other side by this regrowing redwood forest up in the Santa Cruz mountains that had built San Francisco that had built Palo Alto that had built Stanford's railroad you know that had built Stanford itself which indirectly built Silicon Valley you know to but 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 who like all Slaves and colonized people are written out of the history as if they didn't actually make the history. You know, it was only the ingenuity of the, the colonizers. You know, the autonomous will of the colonizers that made made that um, conquest possible. It was living between the redwoods and the Methuselah Project. Um, that that provided me the the tension, the dramatic tension that uh, that was the the instigation of writing this story.
0: When I thought of Nile's new version of a game, of where the virtual or abstract world is tethered to the real world, mm. and its real world limitations and constraints, yeah. it made me think of the Olipo writers in France, mm. who who believed a writer could be liberated or freed by writing with constraints. Yeah. And, and I wonder if, if, if we actually saw other creatures as actors in our world and we witnessed and listened to their needs and desires, what it would be like to turn all of our ingenuity, which we like to marvel at toward making a beautiful society within constraints, yeah. the way Olympians <laughs> make
1: stories with, with constraints. That's lovely. And, and you know, I have always moved, been moved by artists who see as one of the challenges of creation producing everything out of nothing. The opening lines that I read you earlier, first there was nothing, then there was everything. That, that absolutely summarizes the kind of creation that, say, Bach uh, does when he takes four notes and, and and does them as a ground base again and again and again and produces the 15-minute solo violin chacon, which you feel by the end of it completely wrung out emotionally because he's gone through every possible human emotion, spun out of these four notes. Another name for that is genetics, right? And the, to, to, to spin everything out of nothing is the story of life. The construction. The physical constraints being met by, pruned down by natural selection, which process produces, as Darwin calls it at the end of the origin, endless forms, most beautiful. Mm -hmm. That is the exercise that we're involved in. To tie that back to your earlier questions about language as a limitation, but also a potentiator, it is the limits, it is the prison of language itself that makes it possible to find those moments of grace, and genetic infinity and trans, transcendental expansiveness. Um, and to me, I mean, a very simple example of this as I was working on the book was my own sudden expansion of sensitivity to the variety of behaviors of these green things all around me that had previously just been an amorphous mass. And as I began to learn how to name them, I began to see that they had radically different behaviors. They were solving life and the challenges of their environment in profoundly different ways, different shapes, different, uh, temporal strategies, different, uh, structural and formal solutions, um, and it was in some way language that was allowing me to turn that chaotic amorphous nothing into the individual articulated somethings of mm. of of species and then you know uh, individual trees now the problem with language is the same thing that allows you to differentiate and discriminate and articulate can, once you habituate to it, prevent you from being present and f- prevent you from attending. So the fact that I learned to tell a, 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 a coast live oak from a California sycamore at first was a hugely enabling thing, and then subsequently began to prevent me mm. from seeing what that particular California sycamore that i was standing in front of was doing that was different from all the oh, other yes. California sycamores so i was i was sort of oh i've got the category for that i've got the word for it so i'm now blind again to it and and the act of being present and attending is constantly in it constantly regenerative you have to use language to prevent the laziness of language i love that yeah
0: i was in preparing for this interview i happened to tune into a different show on this station. There's several that are uh, run by native Americans. And one of those shows had a, a guest on and they were discussing the question of what does it mean to listen to the land? Mm, And the guest said, I wish I remembered their name, but he said, if I say to you the words, just do it, you immediately think of Nike. And if I say the words, I'm loving it, you immediately think of McDonald's. And if you hear just the first two notes without the full melody and without any words, you know it's stairway to heaven. Mm. But if you hear a bird, you likely don't know what that bird that's is. Right. And that's just sort of like, to me that felt like such a great gauge of the blindness or the lack of
1: listening. Oh my God. Uh,
0: if, if we can recall, we have an ability yeah. and a remarkable ability to yeah. do this recall if we're paying attention.
1: That's absolutely right. It's a beautiful articulation of this. I have to say it it, it requires constant, Will because even bird calls can be turned into a commodity. They can be they can they can be further tokens in the game of self uh, expans- expansion and acquisition. Right, and and you can you can learn what a hermit thrush is, and that could somehow increase your score in a certain game that you're playing uh but if you haven't shifted that consciousness from the commodity mediated self-serving one to the fellow feeling one and and the interbeing the consciousness of interbeing you may know that that call is a hermit thrush's call but what is the hermit thrush saying yeah what is it saying
0: yeah <laughs> that's the question yeah. well i want to i want to do i, I don't want to do a short shrift of another element of the overstory um because Naomi Klein has been a big champion of this mm. book, and one of the reasons she loves the overstory is it's one of the few narratives that valorizes people engaged in direct action, mm. civil disobedience, yeah. and many of the actions we see in the book, like the characters are are composites of of real-life events or inspired and then composited from real-life events, some from Earth First and Earth Liberation Front actions, um, some from Julia Butterfly Hill. Um, But for people who aren't familiar with the history of direct action or who haven't participated in direct action, I'm curious how they've responded to these sections because I could imagine some of them maybe thinking you are being um, hyperbolic or extreme yeah. or fantastical when we see the sadism that has happened in some of the ways these actions have been dismantled
1: that 's a very important question and, and you know the, the the answer to it really depends upon the geography and history of the individual readers here in portland here in the pacific northwest and cascades the audience is going to be much more attuned to the fact that a lot of the book is based on demonstrable history and you know they they know these engagements uh you know, in in the Pacific Northwest, people know about Warner Creek, they know about Headwaters, they know about the the, the 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 timber wars and the specific engagements, the successes as well as the failures. Uh people in other parts of the country may not. And and because the book travels and and walks this line, as we were speaking earlier, between historical realism and a mythological or indigenous kind of folkloric uh mode um that boundary is constantly shifting you know the, the 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 there's a great deal of science, but there's also a great deal of fable um there's a great deal of history, but there's also a great deal of invention um it It does for those for those people who are attuned to the historical event there will be challenges in releasing that those histories to um to the literary to the to, to the to the mythical and to the allegor- or to the to, to the fable like uh the conflation or that the compositing the, the rearranging the temporal liberties the geographical liberties they will say hey you know hey wait didn't happen that that way yeah but it 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 other places or other things you know th- did follow that trajectory and if we take a little bit from one and the other we create a a narrative forward motion that that tells a new story to people in the other parts of the the world who might have no might have complete absence of knowledge about the the, the history of this region and and what happened in those years It does require pointing out that when police swab pepper, liquid pepper into protesters' eyes, protesters who are chained in place, that that isn't, you know, this isn't me being, you know, over the top, that you can go on YouTube and see the videos of that happening.
0: Yeah. Well, what's interesting now is... We're seeing a rise again of direct action and in, I think, a, uh, an awakening around these tactics yeah. after a long period of them not being um, so visible. Yeah. And you, one of the things that you portray in The Overstory is the way the eco-activist movement is dismantled. Because mm. um, I remember back in the 90s here in Portland, uh, the Environmental Liberation Front and the Cascadia Forest Alliance, they had storefronts. Elf had one downtown yeah. well, and I could walk down from my office to the Cascadia Forest Alliance and leave food or money for the tree sitters. Right. Um, it was very public and it was very outward facing, um, even when there were people who had hidden identities mm. with, with certain groups. But um, one of the things you show is how the success of the government in labeling these activists as terrorists yeah. – um, with sentences that were so out of proportion to what they were doing, no lives yeah. lost in any of these actions that um it caused people who got captured to to tell on other activists that's and then right. it rotted the trust from the inside out that's
1: right and i I actually had breakfast this morning with a lot of people who were on the front line you know uh and they were recounting again how completely debilitating and demoralizing it was when the the guts of the movement got broken by this identification of, of, of this great, uh, responsible, concerted, organized, m- legally underpinned, uh, set of actions being compromised by a, a chaotic and, and, uh, and an uncontrolled and and uh an excessive uh, component and and when the whole movement got associated with the, the the fringe extremists, it did force the defense it did it did take the life out of the movement and it did uh, force that defense into a quiescent period now the thing is we're we're entering one of the gravest ecological Challenging moments yet, and you know we have we have an administration that 's committed to completely reversing any movement toward treating the world beyond the human as community rather than commodity and is accelerating the the uh, the destruction of of natural capital and is, uh, working very quickly to dismantle all, you know, as much of the, 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 the legal leverage of, you know, the hard won uh, uh, legal gains of the last 50, 60 years in, in overnight. Right. And here on Mount hood where they have had not been cutting old growth for over a decade. They now are again. Right. So we're back at the moment where, you know, if, if there is no direct action, there will be no old growth forest. Yeah.
0: Well, a lot of people have asked you about whether this book is hopeful and whether there is hope and usually answer this with a question, mm-hmm. hope, hope for what? Yeah. And you say it's inconceivable to hope for human life, anything like what it looks like now that for us to survive, we would have to completely reimagine ourselves here on earth. And I wondered if that was what you mean by committing unsuicide.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And people will want to know the particulars. What does that mean? And you know, how will that play out? And I, I don't have the, the, the power to make that prediction. But I can say, I can articulate to some extent what it is that will be necessary for continued human survival and what will not survive. What will not survive is human autonomy. We have attempted a large scale, long duration experiment in mastery and control. And it is coming back to haunt us with a vengeance. We're finding out not just that we can't do it, but that we've, we've reaped the whirlwind and, and the challenges of the future of survival in the future are going to be as grave as they have been since, you know, ice age, you know, European ice age. Um, and that's that does not necessarily preclude this question of hope if you say hope for the transformation of human consciousness and the return to an inhabitation of place. The commitment not to a private meaning, but to a meaning out there, a meaning that is embodied in the land and in the, in the aggregate ecologies that solve the challenges of local place. If we align ourselves with that, Individually and collectively, then we will be in possession of a state of mind that will give us joy in a way that accumulation has never given us joy, and will give us purpose and satisfaction in a way that accumulation has never given us purpose and satisfaction, and will also give us the stoicism, the resourcefulness, the self possession, the love that we will need, whatever. The the climate catastrophe brings us. I well, hope for that.
0: I hope for that too. Whether that happens or not, it's it's interesting and almost seems paradoxical that there may be hope for trees.
1: No, what, beyond whether, a doubt.
0: Whether there is for us, and I was I was hoping maybe you could speak to how old trees are in comparison to humans yeah. and, and what they've survived.
1: Let's just run that number. Right? <laughs> I mean, what's the, what's the outside that you've seen for anatomically modern humans, 200,000 years, right? Uh, the, the oldest experiments in arborescence. And it's, it's important to point out that arborescence isn't a single thing. I mean, it gets co it gets convergently evolved a lot of different times, you know, at least six different times. That dates back 400 million years. So what's the, what's the ratio between 2, 200,000 and 400 million? That's a factor of 2,000. So trees have survived for the, the duration of the human experiment run consecutively 2,000 times. And they have survived many mass extinctions. And they will survive the mass extinction that we're throwing at them right now. Yeah. And the question is, will we? We will if we ally ourselves with the things that they want. And we won't if we continue to assert ourselves as having desires that need to be met independent of of what the land will sustain and what the rest of life is after.
0: I was hoping maybe we could end with one other short reading. Sure. It's on uh, page 475.
1: Say the planet is born at midnight and it runs for one day. First, there's nothing. Two hours are lost to lava and meteors. Life doesn't show up until 3 or 4 a.m. Even then, it's just the barest self-copying bits and pieces. From dawn to late morning, a million, million years of branching, Nothing more exists than lean and simple cells. Then there's everything. Something wild happens, not long after noon. One kind of simple cell enslaves a couple of others. Nuclei get membranes. Cells evolve organelles. What was once a solo campsite grows into a town. The day is two-thirds done when animals and plants part ways. And still life is only single cells. Dusk falls before compound life takes hold. Every large living thing is a latecomer, showing up after dark. 9 p.m. brings jellyfish and worms. Later that hour comes the breakout. Backbones, cartilage, an explosion of bodily forms. From one instant to the next, countless new stems and twigs in the spreading crown burst open and run. Plants make it up on land just before ten. Then insects, who instantly take to the air. Moments later, tetrapods crawl up from the tidal muck, carrying around on their skin and in their guts whole worlds of earlier creatures. By 11, dinosaurs have shot their bolt, leaving the mammals and birds in charge for an hour. Somewhere in that last 60 minutes, high up in the phylogenetic canopy, life grows aware. Creatures start to speculate. Animals start teaching their children about the past and the future. Animals learn to hold rituals. Anatomical modern man shows up four seconds before midnight, The first cave paintings appear three seconds later. In a thousandth of a click of the second hand, life solves the mystery of DNA and starts to map the tree of life itself. By midnight, most of the globe is converted to row crops for the care and feeding of one species. And that's when the tree of life becomes something else again. That's when the giant trunk starts to teeter.
0: Thank you so much for the overstory and for being here today, Richard Powers. Thank you, David. We're talking today to Richard Powers, the author of The Overstory. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at KBOO.fm. For the Bonus Archive, Richard Powers talks about a collaborative cantata about trees that he created along with musicians and other writers, including Kim Stanley Robinson and Bill McKibben. He talks about visiting W.S. Merwin's self-planted forest and ends with a reading of the poetry of Merwin that was part of this tree-cantata collaboration. This bonus material joins supplemental audio by Brandon Shimoda, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, John Keene, Forrest Gander, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at Patreon.com slash Between the Covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog A e Sa me Mi can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at SoundCloud.com slash Barbara Browning.